I'm going to pray before we, we get into this text here. Our Father, we, we give you thanks again uh, that you've enlivened us in Christ, that we have new life, that we've, we've, if we're in Christ, we've been born again. And we pray that you would uh, make what is true in, in our inward being, that you would extend that to all of who we are so that our actions and thoughts and wonderings would all reflect a transformed heart. We pray that your spirit would, would do this as we consider your word, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, thanks, music group. We've, got, we've added to our numbers, and they're getting here uh, early, a couple hours before we start every week, and so I'm grateful for that, grateful for our AV people that are continuing to work um, and get this thing moving every morning. It's great to see. It's great to see lots of kids helping out, even uh, Lord's Supper and chairs and, and all sorts of things. So we're grateful for all the work that goes into this. Now, question: what what is your what is your problem in this world? What's your difficulty? Like, what do you need? You you know you have an itch. Like a soul itch, what? How do you? How are you gonna scratch that? Is there? Do you need better and more entertainment to binge? Do you need a better spouse? Do you need a better job or more money or more vacations? Right? We all have this sense that something's a little askew, something's a bit off, and we think we know what it is that will scratch the itch. Maybe it's a new car or a new house. Or whatever it is. And then we get those things, then we realize uh, we missed it again. Well, in our text this morning, we've got a guy named Nicodemus who's, who's, who's got it all. He's got a lot, at least. Um, he has achieved a lot, and yet he knows that he's still missing something. That he doesn't have it all. Right? And... and, and Verse 3, some of the things that Nicodemus has. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he's a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees had come on, they kind of get slammed quite a bit by Jesus. And for good reason. And we'll, we'll, we'll take, tackle that another time. But for now, know this. The Pharisees were very educated. They were like incredible educations. They were teachers of the law. And so they had, they had prestige, they had acclaim, they had notoriety. You can think of it like this. Um, when I was in um, seminary, we, we were in the Boston area, and we had a, a there's, there's more than 60 colleges and universities in the Boston area, which is incredible. But the seminary had these agreements with other schools, and one of the schools was Harvard Divinity School. And so I thought, well, my, this is like my one chance to go take a class at Harvard. So took a couple classes there, and we, the professor was this world-renowned scholar that had written, he was kind of at the top of his game, and he had written these really important books. And, and not only had he made a contribution to his field, he had like changed the, the whole conversation of his little field. And so we're sitting there in class waiting for him to stroll in, and he comes in, and there's just sort of this... You know, some of us start hyperventilating and there's just kind of this revered awe for this great professor, right? And that makes sense in a place like Cambridge, Massachusetts, 
on Harvard's campus. The Jews had a similar view towards education. It's really important, right? And Nicodemus is like, he's a Pharisee. He's at the top of his game. So he's got this same kind of aura about him, right? And he's also a ruler, it says. He's a ruler of the Jews, which means he's a member of the Sanhedrin. So not only does he have a claim, he's got power. He's on the inside. He's on the inside. And so he, he, he's, he seemingly has it all, and yet he realizes that he doesn't have it all because he goes and sees Jesus. Um, he does it, and, and you know he's making this very bold move to go visit Jesus. It's very bold because his colleagues, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, are developing a consensus on this Jesus character. They're beginning to reach some conclusions, they believe, on who this Jesus is, and it's not good. In fact, as you probably recall, they will be uh, in large part responsible for his death. They don't like Jesus. And so for Nicodemus to come approach Jesus is a very bold move. You know, every, every, let's go back to the university for a second. The university life, if you teach in a university, there's sort of a dogma to the university. Like, uh, there's certain tenets that you're just kind of expected to adhere to. And if you don't adhere to those tenets, you have to lay low. You have to stay quiet, right? If you're politically conservative, you have, you're supposed to have kind of a view towards masks. And mask wearing. If you're on the liberal side of the uh, political spectrum, you're supposed to you kind of have a view towards masks and mask wearing. All of these different groups have different sort of consensus positions that they hold. And if you veer from that within your little group, you you risk uh, you risk some things, don't you? Unless if you don't have tenure, you don't you don't discredit the dogma of the university until you get tenure, and then maybe you can. You may still may get ostracized, right? So Nicodemus is a part of this body, this, his colleagues that have a very particular view of Jesus. And for Nicodemus to come and approach Jesus and acknowledge that Jesus has something that Nicodemus wants, that's risky. And so you see he comes by night, it says. Now, in our own day, we have kind of a consensus view on Jesus, the culture at large, right? We, 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 we generally, our culture, we may not like Christians, especially like the born-again types, like the crazies. Uh, we have that view towards Christians as a culture. But, but, but Jesus, he's all right. You know, everybody could use a little, the, the, the helping the poor stuff. That's good. You know, if you sort of have little like Jesus sprinkles on your life, along with maybe Buddha and Muhammad, you kind of add that in. That's, that's all right. If you're just checking Christianity out, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're investigating. But, but my challenge for you this morning is to, to not think of Jesus as little sprinkles that you add on top of your life, but to think of Jesus as, as everything. I want you to sort of break rank as Nicodemus did, and and consider who this Jesus is. And what Nicodemus learns in our text this morning is is that Nicodemus must be born again. That's what Jesus says. 
You must be born again. And so what we're going to consider this morning are three things. The shocking offense of the new birth. The shocking offense of the new birth. The second thing is the necessity of the new birth. And then number three, the source of the the new birth. So the shocking offense, the necessity of the new birth, and the source of the new birth. Okay, so Nicodemus, this this is the shocking offense of the new birth. Nicodemus, he's got a love language from what I can tell. And his love language is education. I I resonate with Nicodemus. He's probably a five on the Enneagram. Like he, he, he loves learning. He loves teaching. That's why he's devoted his life to these things. And he's clearly an inquirer because he's coming to Jesus to figure out uh, something new. Right? And he says, verse 2, what does he say? Rabbi, which is a very, it's, it's an honoring title. It's a genuine um, encounter that Nicodemus wants to have. Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God because for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him, right? So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, but he's coming to Jesus on his own terms. Nicodemus believes that, you know, as a five, what he needs is a better uh, system of thought. He needs a new insight that's going to impact how he sees the world. He needs, he needs a, 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 a new paradigm for understanding the world. And that's what he thinks he's going to get. But Jesus immediately redirects the conversation. Says, I'm I'm gonna set the terms for this conversation. Right? Now remember the prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses. We looked at it in, during Advent in back in December. And we said that the prologue of John's gospel was John's gospel concentrate. You know, like the old juice concentrates that you pour into a pitcher and you stir it up and let it just expand and spread and percolate and kind of do what it does. The rest of John's gospel, John's just stirring the, the concentrate. He's just letting it expand. He's putting, he's putting flesh and he's putting uh, flesh and blood on top of the bones that he gave us in the prologue. Remember what he said in the prologue? He said, Jesus is truth. He's the truth. He's, he's reality. He's the light. Right? And John wants us to get this here. Nicodemus comes by night, right? It's, it's literally dark. It's nighttime. But John is saying, look, Nicodemus is also figuratively in the dark. He doesn't see. He sees enough to know that Jesus has something, but he doesn't fully see. There's like this twilight period where there, there's some people seem to be in this twilight where it could, it could either go dark or it could go light. And we don't know, where's Nicodemus standing? He knows enough to know that Jesus has got something. But where's it going to go from here? Also in that prologue, let's let's consider that again. Remember, Remember what John said? The law was given through Moses. This is chapter 1, verse 17 of John. You can go there if you like. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Right? So in other words, John is saying, look, the arrival of, it's not like Jesus is bringing us a teaching, like Moses brought us a teaching. It could have been Moses. It could have been, um, it could have been anybody. Moses was simply a deliverer. John says, but no, with Jesus, it's different. All of these things came embodied in the person of Jesus. 
He is those things. You can't separate the thing from the person. They're all intertwined, bound up in this person, Jesus. And so here's the thing. Nicodemus comes to Jesus looking for refinement, looking for a new lesson, a new insight, a new teaching. And look at what Jesus says. Verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, thrown off balance, right? What? Born again? Can a, verse 4, can a person enter his mother's womb again and be born a second time? It makes no sense to Nicodemus. And Jesus says, restates his point in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is still confused, right? Verse 9. How can these things be? He doesn't understand. Now, there's a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of comment on what this means being born of water and spirit. And we won't go into the whole question. But, but know this for now. Jesus says, didn't seminary, like, what is verse 10? He says, didn't, didn't you, uh, didn't seminary teach you these things? Like, I, Come on, Nicodemus. You've had the best training we provide here, the people of Israel can provide, and you don't understand these things? So clearly, Jesus is, when he says being born of water and the Spirit, he's referring to something that was in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, to be precise, you may have it in your little notes, in your Bible margin. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27. This is what it says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." Being born of of water and of spirit refers to the cleansing and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about. Being born of water and of spirit. In Christ, we are cleansed, washed of our sins, as, as we just sang, and we're also renewed. The Spirit of God that was hovering over the waters at creation comes into us and makes us new from the inside out. We're born again. It's the new birth. And Nicodemus is still surprised. Somehow he had missed it. No matter all of his training and power and place in Jewish society, none of it, none of it, uh, none of it seemed to matter for him. You see the shock of it? The guy who's supposed to get it doesn't? You see the offense of it? This is, this is offensive what Jesus is telling him. Jesus is saying, in essence, look, Nicodemus, all of your work, all of your diligence, all of your education, all of your knowledge, your acclaim, you're kind of climbing the, 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 the hierarchy, none of it matters. It's not, it doesn't matter at all. What matters is something that you have no control over, a new birth, right? 
I mean, just, just like our first birth, you know, none of us put in a request with the big guy upstairs that we should have life, did we? It's passive. It's dependent upon factors outside of our, our own choosing, our own will. We don't, we don't get to will ourselves into this world. And so it is with the new birth, as Jesus is going to say in just a moment. Now, it's, think of it. Here's one way to think of it. Let's imagine that I'm like this great artist. I'm, I'm not at all. But let's just say I am. And I'm, I'm, there, there's, there's the greatest artist in the world that I want to go visit and is kind of, and show them what I've got. And so I spend a decade working on a, a piece of artwork and I go to all sorts of training to create this masterpiece and I work on it and I toil over it and I stay up. I, I spend a lot of over late, you know, late nights working on it. And so I cart it on the airplane. I go and I fly to see this master artist and I get into their presence after working on this masterpiece for a decade, and I come up to them, and they rip the art piece in two, throw it into a fire, and say, if you want to be truly a great artist, you must first become a caterpillar. I would, how, do, how do I do that? What am I supposed to do? Not only have you thrown out my decade of labor, you're telling me that in order to even become an artist, I've got to become something that I can't become myself. That's what Jesus is saying. None of it matters. That's the offense of it, right? It's The new life in Christ is a gift from above. It's not a work from below. And this feels implausible to the haves, Right? If, if you've got something, we saw, saw this last week. To the people that have, it's really hard to get Jesus because you have. Remember the rich young ruler that we looked at last week? And he, he, had, he had kept the law in his own eyes. He was rich, which meant God's blessing was on him. And he's, he seems to just have it all. He's young. He's got a little spring in his step. And remember what Jesus says to him? One thing you lack Get rid of all that you have is basically what he says. You la- the guy that has lacks, and by contrast, the person that has nothing, the Gentile woman that has only a demon-possessed daughter, that's all she's got, um, she has. And that's the nature of Jesus' kingdom. This is why Jesus said in Matthew, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you must become like a little child. See, kids, here's what little children bring. They bring need. They bring dependence. They can't fix their own food. They can't tie their own shoes. They can't, they can't put themselves to sleep, change their diapers. They, they bring dependence and need, and that's it. And Jesus says, look, you, you just want to get into my kingdom? You got to become like a little child. You got to bring your need. Nicodemus, for all your accolades, all your claim, that's just sort of dross in the way of coming to me, receiving the life that I have to offer. So Nicodemus came as a person that wanted a bit of refinement. And what Jesus says is, look, scrap it all. Nicodemus, you want to just grow. Before you grow, you got to be born again. Nicodemus, you're just wanting to kind of see new. But before you can see new, you've you've got to become a new being. So that's the shocking offense of the new birth. Now, the second point, and this will be briefer, the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of the new birth. 
Jesus says, verse 8, you must be born again, right? It's not like you're better off if you're born again or it'd really help if you were born again. You must be born again. That's what Jesus says. It's not an option. Now, I alluded to this earlier, but our own culture kind of has like a, there's like distinctions within Christianity. There's Christians and then there's born again Christians. Like Christians are kind of moderate, a bit restrained. Um, They're the kind of people you could be a neighbor with. And then there's like the born again Christians. They're, they're a little crazy, a little too committed, like Christian extremists. It's even built into the polling. Like uh, they'll, you'll, they'll come out with these polls and it'll say, you know, 54% of born again Christians said this. Jesus is saying here, there's, there's one type of Christian. The only type of Christian is a person who has been born again, who's been remade, regenerated by the Spirit. It's just, Every Christian is a new being, and it's absolutely necessary. Well, the the question I think that flows from that is, how can I know? How do I know that I've been born again? It's an important question. This is like entry into the kingdom of God. It's an important question to consider. And this this is one of those things that bothered me growing up. Um, I came to faith at age nine. Uh, prayed the prayer, got baptized shortly after. But I didn't remember the day. I didn't remember the hour. And that was like concerning to me. Um, and I, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, well, think about it this way. How many of you guys remember your own birth? Uh, we don't remember that, but, but we know it happened, right? The, 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 the proof of our birth is the fact that we're alive this very moment. Right? And so it is with, with life in Christ. The proof is fruits of the Spirit, is life in Christ, walking in faith and repentance, showing up here every once in a while, not every once in a while, every week, showing up here, faithfully walking with the Lord. It's not perfection, but it's, it's faithfulness. It's walking in faith and repentance. And Jesus says, look, he says, it's like the wind. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it's going. Um, we can kind of get a little grasp on wind thanks to our modern weather people, but we still don't know where it's, where it's coming from. We can't like follow it and find its source. What, where is it anyway? We see its effects. And so it is with Christ. You may not know the source or remember the moment that you came to faith in Christ and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Forgive me of my sins. You may not remember that moment, but you, you should see effects of it. You should see a, a walk with Jesus, membership in Christ's church. All of these things are the fruits of, of this new birth experience. And what this means is, this new birth, necessity of it, every Christian throughout time and space, across the globe, every Christian is a walking, talking, breathing miracle. And I find it interesting that all of God's people are miracles in a similar matter. Remember the people of Israel. Isaac was a miracle baby. Abraham and Sarah, they never, they didn't have any children. And then at a hundred plus years old, however old they were, they, they have children. That was a miracle. And every ethnic Jew is a walking, talking miracle. The birth of Christ was a miracle. The miraculous conception 
And so it is with Christ's people. We're miracles. We've been born anew. The Spirit has come in and has given us new life. Well, final, final consideration. What is the source of the new life? What's the source of this new life? And it's answered in verse 16, a familiar verse for us. It says, For, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see the source? God's love. That's the source. It's love. Right? Love is what gave rise to the creation of the world. And love is what gives rise to the new creation that Christ is building throughout the world. His people, His church. It's love that's driving it all. And this love of God, it's not an airy, mushy kind of concept. It's concrete. And, and John helps us see this in these, these, this weird story in the Old Testament, verses 14 and 15. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, a little background here. This is, this is a reference from the book of Numbers. And there, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, and they begin to grumble. You know, was, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Right, and Egypt's all about graves, right? The pyramids are, are basically graves. Um, so there's kind of some humor and this sarcastic humor. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? They're complaining. They're grumbling. And so God brings, brings a judgment to them in the form of these fiery snakes that come and bite them. There, there was a few years ago this ugh, scene that where like a mongoose or some kind of little rodent-y thing was running across a beach and these snakes were coming out like from everywhere, like Indiana Jones sort of snake count coming from all over the place to try to grab this little rodent thing that was running. And I sort of picture that. These snakes come and they, they, they attack the people of Israel. They bite them. And then they have a, a way of salvation. Moses takes a copper snake or bronze snake, but I think it's probably better to understand as a copper snake because they found these copper snakes, archaeological digs, have found these copper snakes in this area um, that are not very big. And it was a snake on a pole. It was like, you know, the medical snake that you see, right? The little pole and the snake kind of twisted on it. That, Moses takes something like that, copper snake, raises it. And as long as, if the people look, turn their eyes and see Moses, Raising the snake, they're saved. The venom, the poison that's in them is neutralized, loses its lethal effect, and they have life so long as they're looking at the lifted snake. Okay? Now, what John is saying, he uses this term, lifted up, and he uses it, he uses it four times in John's gospel. It's an important term for him. Every time he uses it, to be lifted up. Every time he uses it, it's in reference to the hoisting of Jesus upon the cross, which John also sees simultaneously as his death and at the same time his glory and exaltation as king.
Now, here's what, John, here's what Jesus is saying. The way to find this new life is to see me lifted up. There's a poison running in your veins, and it's, it's the poison of sin. And what, in order to gain access to this new life, it's not about achievement, it's not about getting degrees, it's not about becoming a prestigious teacher of Israel and making your way onto the Sanhedrin. None of that matters. The one thing that you must do is see me lifted up, right? Just look to see Jesus. That's what Jesus is calling. You have to see me. It's so simple. It's hard for somebody like you to get. It's easy for a child to get because if their shoes untied, some kind soul will come and help them tie it. They just kind of, they just walk around with their need like on display and people kind of help them out. And that's what it's like. And let's think about this for a sec. That moment in Israel's history, the wilderness moment, all they had to do was look to the snake, right? It, it wasn't like they had to have like a dynamite quiet time and gain some incredible insight from the scroll that they were reading and then look and then be saved. It's not like they had to like climb up the cliff to where Moses was positioned and get the best view and see it, Right? They weren't even seeing it equally. I mean, there were, there were, I just, I recently had eye surgery, so I've been thinking about vision a little bit lately. Like, what, what would a person that's legally blind do uh, before there were glasses and that sort of thing? There was no lens crafters in the wilderness. They're not even seeing the snake in equal terms. They're, some of them are just looking in the direction of Moses. Somebody's probably saying, he's over there. And they're looking, and they're still saved. The poison's neutralized. Right? Because the efficacy of the remedy to the poison in their veins was not based on them. It was based on the object that they were to look to. And so it is with Christ. Right? The efficacy of Christ's work doesn't depend on whether you can remember the day, date, and minute when you prayed that prayer. Doesn't matter on that. What matters is that you turn to Jesus, that you saw Jesus, that you're living with him, that the fruits of this new birth are showing up in your life. That's what matters. We've said this from the, from the very beginning as a church. Our church, our church's success is not based on how many more members we get in this little um, worship group team. It's not based on how, on, you know, whether our signal is, you know, our online thing is high definition or not. It's not based on good teaching. It's not based on like hitting some numerical target that we might have as a congregation. Um, there's, there's, it's not based on the teaching that I bring weekend or Jake's teaching. Our success as a congregation it's not based on those things, even though those things are, many of those things are great things. It is based on the extent to which we look to Jesus and receive the life that he offers simply by looking. That's it. See Jesus. So simple. It's hard to believe. He's life, right? 
And he gives us, by his spirit, life. Not just initially, but in an ongoing way. Like we're, we're turning to Jesus regularly, receiving new life in him. The Westminster talks about sanctification, which, which simply means our growth in Christ. What is sanctification? This is what it says. It says, sanctification is a process whereby we are transformed and enabled to die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. A death followed by life. That's the, that's the cadence of the Christian life. Faith and repentance. Right? We need Jesus. Well, now, final question. What happened to Nicodemus? Because we don't, we don't really learn how this thing unfolded in this particular passage. We do get a clue um, at the end of Jesus's, at the end of the gospel, Jesus is being buried. His body is being buried. And guess who shows up um, in, in, in the daylight uh, to see Jesus? And not only shows up, but brings a lavish amount of aloes and myrrh to help embalm Jesus and prepare his, his body for burial. It's Nicodemus, right? That's a big cost for him. That's a big cost. And I believe that is an indication. John wants us to see, look, Nicodemus here, he's identifying in Christ, with Christ in his death. And because he's identifying with Christ in his death, Nicodemus found life. Nicodemus was born again. Nicodemus, will, 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 we will meet Nicodemus in the new creation. I believe. And that's the key. That's the key to new life. Do you identify with Jesus in his death? Do you receive what his death brings to you? That's what, John, that's what Jesus is saying is key for this new life. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your um, kindness, gentleness, the truth of your scripture. We thank you that it is not as we would have expected. We expect uh, difficult things to come through difficulty. Um, and yet what you teach us is that new life, eternal life, the thing that everybody wants is, uh, is received. It's a gift. It comes without any difficulty at all. In fact, the one difficulty that we have is, is believing uh, the truthfulness of it. And so we pray that you would help buoy our, our, our faith in uh, Christ that you would help us to believe uh, all the wonderful things that are promised to us in your gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.